Well, let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. When we looked at this chapter a couple weeks ago, we covered verses 5 to 10 with a focus on the four elements of the gospel message. And what were they? The Word, the power, the Holy Spirit, and full conviction. This was an amazing four-dimensional perspective of the gospel message. And we also looked at verses 9 and 10 and saw three points there. Three life-guiding points on turning away from idols to God, serving God, and waiting for Christ's return. And we saved the last phrase of verse 10 for today. Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. So let's read from verse 5 again to bring us to this final phrase in the chapter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Paul says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have need, no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. I'm sure that many of you are like me in that the more we read through these New Testament books, the more impressed we are at how so much profound truth is captured in so few words. Chapter 1 here is basically Paul's introduction and his thanksgiving to God for the believers at Thessalonica. He greets them and he rejoices in their testimony. What does he say in verse 3? He basically says, I can't stop thinking about you and the example that you are setting for all believers. The example of what true Christianity looks like. And he seals this section of the letter with this powerhouse of a statement in verse 10. Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. Friends, if you haven't done any wrath reading lately, I highly recommend it. I've been saturating myself over the past week or two with this topic and even before, and I am convinced that one of the biggest reasons Christians live mediocre lives and that we get so caught up in frivolous things and that we're so easily discouraged when hard times come, etc., etc., is because we don't think often enough about the end times, the justice the vengeance, the judgment, and the wrath of God that the Bible talks about and says will strike in its ultimate fullest force once Jesus returns. And on a parallel track, I'm convinced that we just don't think often enough and talk often enough about the rescue, the victory, the privilege of heaven that has not yet arrived, but is guaranteed to all those who believe in Jesus Christ. This morning, verse 10 brings us back 
to these great future realities. And verse 10 prompts us to consider four simple but profound questions. Questions that have the potential and the likelihood of totally changing the direction a person goes in life. If you're a believer, have you stopped recently and asked yourself, if I wasn't a Christian, if I didn't believe God in the Bible, how different would my life be? Well, hopefully it would be radically different, right? We would raise our children quite differently. We would spend our money, our resources, our time quite differently. We'd spend these Sundays very differently. But perhaps of greatest importance, these four questions that we'll look at today affect what a person considers to be the ultimate purpose for living. When you and I make it to the end of life and look back, what will it be that causes us to believe we have lived our life well? What will the bullseye be? What will the chief standard be by which we evaluate how we lived all these years? Verse 10 prompts four questions that totally frame the standard for that end-of-life evaluation. Here are the four questions. Who is Jesus? What is the wrath to come? How does Jesus rescue us? And how should this impact my life today? Let's pray and then we'll look at some answers from the Scripture. Heavenly Father, this is no small text that has been set before us today. This idea, this reality of Jesus rescuing us from the wrath to come. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to spiritual truth. May your spirit go before us. Give us an attitude of humility. Give, it an, give us a, a hunger for truth, for righteousness. Lord, we pray that we would walk away from this place seeing God more, seeing the wonder of the rescue that has become already ours. Thank you for what you're going to do in this place, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So our first question to jump right in is, who is Jesus? Now, for all of us who've been reading the Bible for decades, and those who here, who I am sure have several hundred Sunday morning services under their belt, when we hear the question, who is Jesus? We might start to tune out just a little bit, right? And why would we tune out? Because we know the answers to this question. We've heard them for years. Friends, do not tune out. It's the tuning out the answer to this question that begins to disrupt and destroy the joyful, confident Christian life. Who is Jesus? Now, of course, that's a question that every person has to answer for themselves. And it's perhaps the single most defining question in all of Scripture. The entire Bible revolves around the person and work of Jesus and His impact on humanity. Who is Jesus and what did He do that made such a difference? Why do people follow Him? Why do people worship Him? As we look for answers to this question, it's important that we also understand that Jesus is not who we think He is. He is who He says He is. 
Now, I mention this because every person in this room makes their decision to become a Christian or not based on their understanding of who Jesus is. And sadly, as is the case often in life, people form conclusions based on very little information. If we really want to know who Jesus is, we should begin by listening to who He claims to be, who the Bible says He is. The Apostle Paul understands the importance of this. So under the divine guidance of the Holy Spirit, that's what we call the inspiration of God, Paul lists several qualities of Jesus right here in verse 10. First, we see that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 9 into 10 says, to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son. This is hands down the greatest claim of the man Jesus. To be the Son of God is to be divine. We refer to this as the deity of Christ, the divine, heavenly, God nature of Jesus Christ. He was not just a man. He was God the Son come in the flesh. You know what we call this? The incarnation. God become man. Countless verses throughout the New Testament teach and repeat this truth. Think back to the monumental baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3. Here we find God the Father affirming that Jesus is His Son. It says, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. I have no idea what that must have looked like, but it must have been awesome. The heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting upon him. And, a, and behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is huge. These words have never been uttered from heaven before. But we not only have God the Father claiming Jesus to be the Son of God, we also have Jesus claiming the same for Himself. John 5.18 sheds a very interesting slant on this. It says, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him. We're only in John chapter 5, and the Jews were already seeking all the more to kill Him, that is Jesus, because He not only was breaking the Sabbath, according to their rules, right? He was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. There's Jesus Christ's claim to deity, and he made that claim many more times throughout his life and ministry. But not only do we have God and Jesus claiming his sonship, the angels affirmed it as well. Listen to this angelic proclamation in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. This is in response to Mary asking how a virgin birth could even be possible. Verse 35, the angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. As we continue studying the scriptures, we see not only that God the Father and Jesus and the angels claim Jesus to be the Son of God, we also have the apostles confirming it. Of course, the apostle Paul confirms it right here in our text today. But take all the disciples who were in the boat that day. 
after Jesus had taken a young fellow's lunch and miraculously fed 5,000 men plus women and children. That night he went out on the stormy waters and walked on the sea. And not only that, when he stepped into the disciples' boat, he calmed the sea. As we look at Matthew 14, it says, And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's Son. These are carefully chosen words. And take the Apostle John in 1 John 5, verse 20, where he says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Talk about the witness and the teachings of one apostle confirming and affirming the witness and teachings of the other apostles. John is saying the same thing that Paul is saying in our text here. This is the true God and eternal life. And just as a side note here in, our, in, our, in light of our study a couple weeks ago, what is the next verse that comes in 1 John chapter 5? Verse 21, little children, guard yourselves from idols. And as if we needed more confirmation, here's another interesting source. Even Jesus' enemies confirmed it as they killed him on the cross. Matthew 27, 54. Now the centurion, that's no small person. The centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. So why am I emphasizing these points on Jesus' deity this morning? They teach us that Jesus was not just an excellent teacher. He was not just a miracle worker. He wasn't just a most virtuous person or an excellent prophet, as many have falsely claimed. He was and is the Son of God. And that changes everything. Think about it. Without that truth, there is no gospel. Without that truth, there is no salvation. Without that truth, the entire Bible falls apart. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the very key to Christianity. God the Father affirmed this. Jesus claimed this. The angels, the apostles, even his enemies affirmed this. This point separates Jesus into a class all of his own. No other person could rightly claim to be the divine Son of God. If for no other reason, this claim is significant reason enough for us to pay attention to who the Bible says Jesus is. Now, to more fully appreciate him being the Son of God... We also have to remind ourselves who God is. You see, of course, God can mean just about anything to anyone. That's why Paul, in this polytheistic, idol-worshiping society of the time, was careful in this verse to not only distinguish Jesus, but to distinguish his Father as well. Look at verse 9. Who is God the Father? Now, of course, we could spend all year trying to answer this question, but watch. I'm only going to spend one minute on it. 
One minute, because we'll only look at the two points given right here in verse 9. We studied these a couple weeks back. God the Father is the living God, and He is the true God. From those two truths in the text, we understand more fully that Jesus is the Son of the living God, and He is the Son of the true God. Listen, He is not one of the sons of one of the gods. Contrary to what many religions teach out there. Those two statements were made to the exclusion of all other gods. Lowercase g, gods. All the false gods. All the dead idols made of wood and stone. Made by the very hands of those who were worshipping them. That's a thought, isn't it? Go build your own god if you want one. How true can that god possibly be? This was to the exclusion of all the mystic gods all of the made-up idea gods. No, this was the one and only living and true God, and Jesus is His only begotten Son. Listen closely. That makes Jesus also the living and true God by nature. That's why Jesus said in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. That's why the Pharisees and religious leaders of the day hated Him. They vehemently hated him. All the more they wanted to kill him. Colossians 2.9 affirms, For in him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So we learn from verse 10, briefly, that Jesus is the Son of God. Secondly, verse 10 teaches us that Jesus is from heaven. It says to wait for his Son from heaven. This simply and powerfully again distinguishes Jesus from being just an amazing upright person, an extraordinary teacher or prophet. No, Jesus came straight from the place of God, the palace of God, the home of God, the presence of God the Father. He comes from the spiritual reality that the Bible calls heaven. Here's why this is so noteworthy. No other human being can authority claim such a place of origin. Whereas many human beings have and will be born on earth and go to heaven if they believe in Christ, only one being comes first from heaven, and that is Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, made into the likeness of men. Read Philippians chapter 2 for an incredible explanation of Jesus leaving heaven and what that humble process looked like and where he ended up in the end. Philippians 2. Those who know and love God love Philippians chapter 2. Thirdly, verse 10 teaches us that Jesus is the Son of God who died, raised from the dead. Now, if you are even remotely paying attention, then your brain kind of does a backflip like mine when we hear again the thought of the Son of God dying. If we were writing this story, we probably wouldn't have included this part about the living and true God who died a human death. We wouldn't even thought of that. But that's what verse 10 and all the Bible teach. Jesus is the God-man who died. Our brain slams on the brakes when we hear the thought 
of God the Son dying. But our brain doesn't even know what to think when we hear about the Son of God who willingly died. And it about goes numb when you hear about the Son of God who willingly died for sinners, for us, those of us who by our behavior have broken the Ten Commandments, those who by nature through Adam's sin were born enemies of God. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Jesus is the Son of God who willingly died for us. Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. He took our place on the cross. This is what we call the substitutionary atonement. And it isn't just Christ's willingness to die for us that so amazes our comprehension. It's also the fact that the Father so loved us that He willingly sent His Son to willingly die so that as John 3.16 says, whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. That is an absolutely overwhelming set of truths. And to think that it's all hidden right here in 1 Thessalonians 1, just two inches beneath the surface of the verse. Jesus is the Son of God who willingly died for us. But the verse isn't done. Fourthly, letter D, it teaches, and necessarily so, that Jesus came back to life. Same phrase in verse 10, raised from the dead. And the verse furthermore teaches us that Jesus was specifically raised by the power of the Father, whom He raised from the dead, referring to the Father raising the Son. This is the ultimate comeback. I don't know a person in this room who doesn't like to see a good comeback. Just when Satan thought he had won, Jesus was proven to be the living God. We don't worship a Savior who died. We worship a Savior who died and came back to life. It would still be a noble thing, perhaps, to worship the Son of God who willingly died for sinners. But the power is in His resurrection. The hope of eternal life is in the Savior's death and resurrection. Again, Romans 5.10, we just read, says, Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And I love this next phrase in verse 10. That is Jesus. Friends, that amazing person just defined so adequately and so wondrously in this text. That's Jesus. That's our Jesus. Paul says, that Son of God we're waiting for, who came from heaven, who died for us, who came back to life for us, who's coming back for us, that's Jesus. He's why you believed in the first place. He's the message. He's the power. He's the spirit. He's the full conviction. He's your joy in tribulation. 
He's the one who's doing that work of faith and that labor of love and that steadfastness of hope in you that we could not do for ourselves. That is Jesus, and that is who we're waiting for. And then Paul drops the bomb. Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. This is the final point of attention in this part of Paul's introduction. We turn from idols to serve God, to wait for Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. About that wrath to come, as the saying goes, we ain't seen nothing yet. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we cannot forget. We must keep our eyes focused on the fact that the biggest, fullest, truest, bestest, most compelling reason we believed in the first place is yet to come. That grace and peace that we have in our life right now, that faith, that love, that hope that has so touched our lives already is only a taste of the reality of the full rescue that is yet to come. Friends, if you're not an eschatological soteriologist yet, then you should become one real fast. All those seminary classes, i got to use some of those words, right? Prove that I'm learning something. That means if you and I don't know what our salvation, the soteriology, what our salvation is going to do for us when the ultimate and final judgment of God strikes in the end times, that's the eschatology, then we would do well to start studying diligently right now. Paul says that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come, not from our current trials, not from our health issues, not from our financial problems. You fill in the blank. blank. He rescues us from something infinitely Worse, the final wrath of God upon sinners and all evil. We've looked at how the Scripture teaches and reminds us who Jesus is. Now we ask, what is this wrath to come that Jesus rescues us from? Apart from the answer to this question, our faith is at best warm and fuzzy. Yep, I love Jesus. He took my sins away. I believe the Bible. God made everything in seven days. He died. He came back to life. Yes, but friend, why does that matter, right? It's because the Bible teaches that there is a wrath to come like this world has never seen. The flood in Noah's Ark will look like a puddle in the streets. The brimstone and fire that said rained out of the heavens upon Sodom and Gomorrah are just a glimpse at what God can and will do. All of the firstborn of Egypt that God slew in one night, think about it, all of the firstborn of an entire nation is nothing compared to the scope of judgment that will hit the world and all humanity in the end. Now, as we dive into this question, what is the wrath of God, we need to understand that this is not fear-mongering. We're talking about biblical reality, not an exaggeration, a reality. 
Did you know that if you drink and drive, you could kill yourself and your family and a dozen other people in less than three seconds? That's not fear-mongering. That's reality. Did you know that if you take that illegal drug, you might not wake up? That's reality. Now, up that reality to the God level, to the epic, eternal holiness versus all evil level that spans all mankind for all the history of the world, God in His justice, because He is a right and pure and holy God, must and will deal with the annihilation and retribution of all evil for all time. And the Bible says it will reach proportions that our minds cannot even imagine. Romans 12, 19 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That divine vengeance is my only solace when I look at the violence in this world. Two or three days ago, 50 people gunned down during the time of prayer in those two mosques in New Zealand. Not to mention all the abuse that happens in our own community every day right behind closed doors. Not to mention the 40 to 50 million babies killed in the womb annually on this planet. Yes, if God is a just God, and He is, He will annihilate all evil and deal out perfect vengeance. That wrath is to come. That's why when we get to the end of this study today, we appreciate and hold so dear our rescue. But first, how many here had opportunity this last week to read or listen to Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Or how many have seen it in the past, read it in the past? A quick pass at that sermon will give you a good glimpse into the final judgment and an appreciation of the rescue that has been so freely afforded us. I'll leave the links to that up on the homepage of our community for another week or so. But there is something even more powerful than that sermon. It's called the book of Revelation. If you as a follower of Christ want a refresher on the future wrath that you are rescued from, then sit down for about an hour and a half and read straight through the book of Revelation. If you're not a believer, but you want to know more about what the Bible says about the justice of God and His wrath and His rescue, read the book of Revelation. Now, whether you're already a believer or not, let me just say, it's easy to miss the whole point of Revelation. You, you know this. It's easy to get lost in all the imagery, to get, to get confused in the prophecies. Here's the simple conclusion that I trust you'll come to. I don't want to go there. Speaking of hell, right? And I do want to go there, speaking of heaven. And I understand my eyes have been opened to the fact that God and His Son are the one true and living God. Time doesn't permit us to do an in-depth study on the wrath of God this morning, of course. 
And that's not the point of verse 10, right? If it was, Paul would have dived into it here. But it is important that we have a general, clear understanding of God's wrath to come so that we can appreciate this verse and even this set of verses. So let me read some scriptures for just a few minutes. I'll begin in the Old Testament and quickly work our way toward Revelation. Let's go to Nahum, the prophet. In Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 to 6, we read, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before Him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before Him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by Him. Now, interestingly, although Nahum's prophetic poem here may very well have been pointing to the Assyrian captivity of the ten northern tribes to come, it still speaks accurately to the general wrath and justice of God. If we now go to the writings of the prophet Zephaniah, we see his prophecy also possibly and likely pointing to the Babylonian captivity which was yet to come. But again, it speaks accurately to the justice and wrath of God. Listen to Zephaniah's prophetic poem in chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In, in it, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of His jealousy for He will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one of all the inhabitants of the earth. Come with me now to the New Testament. Romans chapter 2, 511. This becomes more current, more personal. Paul says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. No one will get a free pass on their own deeds. Thank God for the deeds of Jesus Christ. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That verse alone drives us to very carefully consider the Bible's claim to be truth. If a person rejects it, they reject, they receive the wrath of God. At the heart of the matter, a person simply needs to decide whether or not they believe the Bible is true and the Word of God. They must decide if they will or will not put their faith in Jesus. Let's jump all the way to the prophecy of Revelation now. Chapter 6, Revelation 6, verses 12 to 17. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, that is, Jesus Christ, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Revelation chapter 19 verses 11 to 16. We're almost now to the end of the Bible, the prophecy of the end times. It says in verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty." And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Next chapter, Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 15. When the thousand years are completed, that would be the millennial reign of Christ on earth, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. It is the enemies. And the devil who, was, who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet also are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That is what Jesus rescues us from. That's the final and full wrath of God, righteously and justly administered to all evil and all evildoers of all time. Hebrews 10.31 rightly says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Can you see why? I am incredibly pleased at this point in our study to tell you that the wrath is not the only thing to come. The prophets, 1 Peter 1.10 speaks of the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come. Praise God, hallelujah. The grace that would come. For every promise of wrath, there are many promises of grace. For every ounce of wrath, there is greater grace. Questions number three and four for the morning are now very simple to answer. Question number three, how does Jesus rescue us? How does he save us? That's where the cross comes in. That's where the empty tomb comes in. Jesus rescues us by grace through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that simple. It's that pure. It's that true. Listen to these life-giving words from Jesus. In John chapter 3, verses 16 to 19, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We are rescued by believing. When, by the grace of God, we place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord for forgiveness of sin and for the gift of eternal life, those things that we could not receive on our own, that's when Jesus sweeps in and snatches us from the imminent wrath of God. 
That's the picture of the word rescue. Snatched from the fire. Pulled from the raging river. Saved from the hostage situation. We are and have been and will be rescued. Listen to how Peter describes the rescue. Back again in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They're all saying the same thing, aren't they? It's awesome. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God. That's why we don't have to worry about our trials, our health, our circumstances, war, famine, you name it. We are protected by the power of God in these circumstances. We are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We haven't seen the best yet. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And don't you love this next part? And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Saved from what? The wrath of God. John 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. These are the words of Scripture. These are the words of God. Question number four. How should this impact my life today? Well, that, that's an easy one. I pray to God that everyone in this room would believe. As we were reminded in Sunday school, when God reveals Himself as He does in the Word, we have two options. What are they? Fear or faith. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And when we believe, my prayer is that we will keep believing by the power of God. And that we will keep on believing. And that our believing, our faith, would become more and more established, as the apostles said. Because we quickly realize that our being rescued by Jesus should impact everything. There's no way around it. True Christianity is a total and constant life redirect. We decide to follow Jesus 
And that becomes the lens by which we view everything in this world. Instead of living according to what we think, which, think about it, is virtually nothing compared to the scheme of all eternal knowledge. Instead, we live by faith in the timeless truths of God's Word. Instead of living for our pleasures, we long to know through the Scriptures what pleases God. Instead of planning our, out our life, we ask God to direct our paths. Instead of relying on our own strength, we rely on God's. Instead of being weighed down by life's trials, instead of being weighed down by the circumstances that are so real, we look at our rescue and it empowers us to persevere. It gives us hope and joy and purpose that are beyond our circumstances, and the list goes on and on. Our spiritual, eternal being rescued by Jesus from the wrath of God to come should impact everything because we've seen the last chapter. The question then is, how much of an impact is this rescue having on us today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can't look long enough and hard enough at that rescue when we see beyond it what we have been rescued from. Lord, there isn't a person here who can say, I am not a sinner. We are all sinners. And by virtue of that, we earn the judgment and the wrath of God. You must give it because you are a righteous judge. We would expect no less of you. But how, we don't know it is possible. But Lord, you are also a loving and merciful Savior. Our hearts are so overwhelmed by the fact that you loved us. You so loved us that you sent your own son. And he so loved us that he willingly came and he laid down his own life as the shepherd for the sheep. Oh, Lord, help us to grow in our understanding, our rejoicing, our gratefulness for this rescue. Lord, if there is even one here who has not received the rescue, I pray that you would do what only you can do, and that is you would open their eyes to such spiritual truth. Let the Holy Spirit guide their thoughts and reveal you to them. Lord, as we go from this place, help us to be good stewards of the rescue. Help us not to get so easily caught up in the frivolous things of this life. Help us not to be so easily weighed down by the very real pains that come our way. Lord, help us not to look back at what we have been rescued from. We love you. Help us to be good stewards 
of the gospel message, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.